Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 171, Operation Lutich. Last time, as Hitler's defenses in the West were beginning to crack, with the Anglo-Canadians first at Caen and then the Americans to the west of this, Hitler ordered a massive counterattack. It was to be called Operation Lutich and called for the Americans at Morton, 45 kilometers southwest of Caen and 20 kilometers off the west coast, to be hit and then driven west to the sea, or at least out of the way so Avranche, closer to the coast, could be retaken. If this could be achieved, the Allies would be bottled up in their little corner, and though Lutage was solid on paper, the same could not be said for the situation on the ground or in the air. Oberst Gruppenführer Paul Hauser, newly promoted, was putting together his force and taking what he could spare from the 7th Army, when Hitler sent him a message that said, There will be eight panzer divisions with you, plus 1,000 aircraft. Hauser had to be thinking, Okay, if that was the numbers, then this was doable. But Hauser wasn't as good a politician as he was a soldier. First, most of the panzers he was counting on were already engaged. It was impossible to pull them out without creating another emergency. As for the promised air power, those 1,000 planes quickly came down to a more realistic 300, and then zero. The counteroffensive was to commence on August 7th, in just a few days' time. So Hauser got busy looking around to see what he had to hand. It certainly wasn't eight panzer divisions. For the big push, he would have the Wehrmacht's 2nd and 116th Panzer Divisions, the Das Reich, and the 17th SS Panzer Grenadier Kampfgruppe. There were other formations in the area, to be sure, but they would all be focused on holding the British back near and around Khan. Still, the Liebstandarte would pull away from the fighting there and help out. But as it was trying to disengage, it had to do so piecemeal, so those gaps could be covered by others. The way things played out, the dribs and drabs of the Lieb made very little difference in the coming battle. Much of it was coming in too late to fight at all. The plan put together by Hauser and his staff would drive hard just north of Morton. Not only would the Allies be pushed back, but a shield would be thrown over the northern half of the town as other units engaged directly with the defenders there. This northern attack would be carried out by the two army panzer divisions. Hauser, an SS man, was showing himself. Let the regular army throw up a smokescreen it would be the SS that made Hitler's plan a reality. Once the area to the north of Morton was safely in German hands, the Liebstandarte, coming in late anyways, would hit whatever targets there were then available to further cause problems for the Allies. But it would be the Das Reich and the 17th SS Panzer Grenadier Kampfgruppe that would drive straight into the town. Further, Das Reich would split into two groups. A northern group, based on the Der Führer Regiment, would come in to the northern part of town, while the other Das Reich group, centered around the Deutschland Regiment, 
but made stronger with a Panzer Regiment and a reconnaissance battalion added on, would attack the southern section. It would be the 17th SS Kampfgruppe coming in right at Moraton, between the Dusreich battlegroups. But it would not be the 17th SS's job to come into town. Instead, a height designated Hill 314 stood right on the eastern side of Morton, and that's where the 17th SS would go. They were to rush up and take it from a battalion of infantry of the U.S. 30th Infantry Division. Whoever held Hill 314 could protect Morton or make its occupants' lives a living hell. Now, Hitler had not wanted the counterattack to commence so quickly. Instead, he wanted a buildup of forces, only then to send them crashing into the Americans. But the overall commander in the West, Plugi, countered by saying, if we build up our forces, the Westerners will obliterate them with their air power. Better to hit ASAP. When Hitler agreed, Plugi pushed for another concession. He wanted to start the attack at night. Perhaps they could get through the Americans' lines quickly, but equally important, it was to get as much ground covered before the Allied air arm made an appearance. Hitler gave Kluge his way in this as well. At 10 p.m. on August 6th, the attack got underway, sort of, as best it could, all things considered. Basically, if the plan was to sneak up and punch the Americans in the nose, then little of that was achieved. First, the 2nd Panzer Division, which was to surge north of Morton, did not have specific objectives. Simply to head that way and shoot at anything that shot at them, which is not exactly a plan for the military. The pieces of the Lieb were coming in slowly, but more than that, they were taking their time when released from their current fighting. So the question was, where was the fierceness? Where was the pride in being Hitler's personal army? As for the De Fuhrer Regiment, that was to head to the north section of the town as they got closer. But they found that their way was blocked, not by the Americans, but by the vehicles of the Liebstandata that had showed up. And as the Lieb had the priority of the roads, this confusion would delay their attack to clear away the edge of the town, and then wait as the battle unfolded to then hit the Americans while still fresh. As for the Der Fuhrer Regiment, they were forced to get through this congestion as best they could, which delayed their pre-dawn attack. Still, as for the initial goal of this counterattack, the Americans would be pushed out of Morton, but that was not a victory in and of itself. The men of the U.S. 30th Infantry Division were forced to exit the town at its northwest corner, but having been forewarned, they weren't pushed too far. In fact, just a few miles past the town. And with the attackers getting a late start, it wasn't long before their saving grace, the morning mist, was burned away by the midday sun. What came next was simply the Allied air forces burning away the German forces on the ground and in the air. Just as the mist went away, the American and British pilots were already in the air, having been forewarned of this operation by Ultra. 
And as the mist was gone, the German pilots started taking off, but many were killed in their planes as they taxied down the runway. Dozens were taken out on the ground while taking off or just getting into the air, which forced the pilots to fly straight at first, a predictable pattern. The U.S. 9th Air Force and the RAF 2nd Tactical Air Force did their job that day as not one German plane flew over the battlefield at Morton. With nothing else to do, the Allied fighters and bombers then went after the German columns. There were plenty to choose from. When the Americans were pushed out of Morton and pushed back to Les Hables Blanches, they dug in and readied themselves to receive hell. Instead, it was their attackers that had hell rained down on them. The Germans, after quickly losing many armored vehicles, got out, dug holes, and kept their heads down. Their gains from that morning was all they were going to achieve. The main reason the Americans were pushed out of Morton was because the Deutschland coming into the southern part of the city hit them hard, leaving their vehicles behind as well as foregoing a preliminary artillery attack, the SS infantry got up close to the Americans before firing a shot. Surprised, the defenders fell back. But as we have seen, though they lost the town, they were not pushed as far back as Hitler would have liked. Also, there were American positions holding out that had not succumbed to the panzer attacks. First, there was Hill 314 itself, just east of Morton. The Americans there, well dug in, fought off attack after attack from the 17th SS Kampfgruppe, but also just north of Hill 314. The two army panzer divisions, along with a part of the Lieb, had been held up as well. In summation, the Germans held the town of Morton, a section just to its northwest, a section below the town, but that was it. The goal of driving west to the coast was still a long way off. Hitler's attitude at this, besides blaming his generals, seemed to be in for a Fenning, in for a Reichmark. He ordered that the 10th SS Panzer Division, currently at Veer, just to the northeast of Morton, be pulled out and sent south of that town. Hopefully, this would force the Allies to extend themselves by checking this latest surge. Hopefully, opportunities would appear. But by the time the 10th SS Panzer arrived, the Germans overall were barely holding back the reinforced Americans, while the British and Canadian forces to the north by northeast showed no signs of wanting to sit still. The role of breaking out, designated to the 10th SS, was now one of helping to hold the line. That was it. Worse, a new threat popped up for the Germans. By August 11th, Patton's 3rd Army, pushing east, south of Morton, was about to reach Alonso, about 60 kilometers southeast of Morton. Should the U.S. 3rd Army be able to break out, the entire German position in northwest France would be in jeopardy which forced even Hitler to realize his counteroffensive, any counteroffensive, was not possible. His forces around Morton were ordered to pull back to the east before they were cut off 
Now, a few days before this pullback of August 11th, 72 new panzers had reached the area, but Kluge, in overall command, had ordered them two more temps to help with the offensive. They were now pulling back along with everyone else. Staff Officer Kramer had been hoping to use them as a part of a new defensive line stationed just above Falaise, itself about 20 miles due south of Caen, for clearly the line there could not hold much longer. Sure enough, on August 8th, Monty launched Operation Totalize. Its goal was to capture Falaise. Using British, Canadian, and Polish troops, the last one had just arrived, the Allies started out well enough. But language differences, not to mention this varied group, did not have the collective tactical experience to take advantage of the German missteps, caused the offensive to slow down by the end of the first day. Its momentum was also robbed when Allied bombers accidentally hit the Canadian and Polish troops. Kurt Meyer, seeing his opportunity, grabbed what Hitler Union was left, their spirits were still high, and he matched that enthusiasm with the might of Wunsch's armed Kampfgruppe and what was left of the 101st Heavy Battalion. It's worth noting that the numbers of available panzers had started dropping and would continue to do so. Michael Wittmann, the man who seemed to carry the soul of Nazi Germany within him, having already scored 138 destroyed enemy tanks and 132 anti-aircraft guns, was leading this armored column that was making right for the Allied line at full speed. But it was at this moment that fate, which can play cruel tricks, decided against the ace panzer commander. As he was so focused on what was ahead of him, he missed the squadron of Sherman tanks, being driven by men from Northamptonshire. One of their high-velocity 17-pounder main guns hit his tank right in its side. His ammunition and fuel exploded, which sent his turret flying off. All the German tanks around him were also taken out. If Monty thought it would be easier after this wrecking of German armor, he would be sadly mistaken. As his offensive started up again, it was again stymied by the arrival of 8.8-centimeter flat batteries delivered by the Luftwaffe. Still, the Allies went forward just slowly. The soldiers of the Hitler Union were being pushed back to Falaise and then pushed back through it and then pushed to its southern edge, with the Allies taking the practically destroyed town on August 17th. Still, the Hitler Union continued to fight just as hard from wherever they were standing. The Canadians complimented their fighting zeal. And it was this tenacious defense put up by the Hitler Union, along with two SS Tiger tank battalions and the remainder of the 21st Panzer Division, that allowed the two Army tank divisions to successfully retreat from the Morton area, who had failed to push their way west. But as Churchill had said four years and two months previously, wars are not won by evacuations. Meanwhile, Patton and his Third Army were making life harder 
for the retreating Germans by pushing due east of Morton. By August 15th, they were close to Argentan, about 10 miles southeast of Falaise. Hence, the Germans still in and around Falaise were in another pocket, but it was relatively better defended than the Morton pocket that had been forming around them to the west. But clearly, the Falaise pocket would collapse. It was just a matter of time. So Hauser set up two lines, one to the north, the other to the south of this new pocket, as the slower infantry retreated east to escape this latest Allied trap. With this latest debacle, another head would roll. Hitler fired Kluge and replaced him with Field Marshal Walter Model, as the latter was gung-ho about not giving up any territory. As for Kluge, guessing what was going to happen to him, he killed himself on the flight home. Then the gung-ho Model saw the situation for himself and approved Kluge's last order to retreat. Hitler may not have liked this, but as the Allies completed a second landing in southern France on August 15th, the Atlantic Wall was now indefensible. Not all of the Germans had escaped the Follies pocket, so after it was cut off from the rest of the general retreat, the Allies began to squeeze it. But, being masters of pockets from both perspectives, many of the Germans were able to either fight their way out or sneak out at night. It was here that the SS began to lose their experienced leadership. Liebstandat's commander, Theodor Wisch, was wounded and then captured. Paul Hauser, the 7th Army commander himself, was wounded by a shell fragment to the head and had to be taken out of the area. Panzer commander Max Wunsch was wounded in the leg, which slowed him down, which ended with him being captured on August 24th. But if the Allies thought the Germans were now just going through the motions, they were about to have their attitude adjusted. With Germans still trying to escape the Follies pocket, the 2nd SS Panzer Corps was ordered to punch a hole in the Allied ring just ahead of one of the last German infantry units trying to escape. But the 2nd SS Panzer ran out of fuel. The Allies probably attributed the Panzer's failure to their own fighting prowess. But then, two Kampfgruppen of the Das Reich showed up to take over. A hole was created, but the Polish 1st Armored Division was doing everything it could to reseal it. That's when the two battalions of Der Führer, each still possessing six tanks, hit the Poles in their flank, quickly taking out five enemy tanks. The German infantry continued eastward, as did the last of the Das Reich on August 21st. Another successful escape. Hitler's idea of engaging and then destroying the Allies in Western Europe to then turn full force on the Russians had fallen apart, and now all of France seemed indefensible. By this point, the Germans had lost 240,000 men, dead or wounded, and another 200,000 were now prisoners. Just before they were captured, many of the Wehrmacht soldiers 
had thrown away their guns and simply waited to be captured, which disgusted the men of the SS. As for the SS units, the Hitler Jungen still had some 12,500 men. The Lieb, a bit more, with two other divisions, still some 6,000 men strong. The true casualties of the D-Day landings thus far were German armor, other vehicles, and artillery. And it was about to get worse. With the Germans rushing to the Seine, which runs through Paris, temporary bridges were built. But as they were not as strong as what they had replaced, many of the SS vehicles had to be left behind. And the retreating did not stop on the east side of the Seine. The Waffen SS continued its pullback through northern France, through Belgium. But the 9th and 10th SS Panzer Divisions were ordered to the Netherlands to pick up new vehicles waiting for them. They arrived at Arnhem on September 7th. The other SS units were able to reach Germany proper only after numerous rearguard actions to delay the ever-present Allies. And as the SS had fewer vehicles, the Allies had a much easier time of keeping up with those who were retreating. The result of this was straightforward. A Hitler Jungenkampfgruppe commander, Erich Olbolter, was chased, which forced him to forget caution, which caused him to lose both legs to a mine. Another Kampfgruppe commander was killed soon after. Then there is the dynamic Kurt Meyer himself. Hounded, boxed in, and then captured on September 7th, Meyer was almost shot out of hand by his captors, the Belgian resistance, just as soon as they discovered his identity. But he would be handed over to the British for war crimes against Canadian troops while in Normandy. The story of the Waffen-SS thus far was truly one of rags to riches, only to return to rags. First, fighting the political war against the regular army, championed by Himmler and Hitler, to then carry out staggering victories in the East, only to see those successes becoming meaningless as the Russian tide never subsided, only to have their goals in Western Europe become Another meaningless battle, as the Westerners had ample men and firepower to draw upon. And though their tenacity saved thousands of Germans from being captured, they were all now retreating together back to the fatherland.